Well, I'd like to ask you to do three things this morning. The first thing would be to open your Bibles to the book of Romans in the New Testament. The second thing would be to put your tray tables up. And the third thing would be to prepare for turbulence. And that's because we are going to do a jet tour of Romans today. So you want to have Romans, we're going to do a jet tour through the entire book. I have 46 pages of notes, believe it or not, and a whole lot of caffeine in my system. So we're going to go fast, really fast. So I'm not good at remembering dates, but I'm guessing it's been maybe a decade since we've done that. this at Omaha Bible Church. I've done it, I don't know how many times in my life. I've preached through Romans at least a couple of times, lots of Bible studies in Romans. It's a great book because it helps you to understand sin, salvation, the work of Christ and its details. It helps you to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles. I promise you, if you pay attention and are alert, this will really help you to understand the Bible better, to understand Christ better, to understand people in the world around you better. I promise you. And if God so chooses, it will change your life. It certainly changed my life. So Romans is our text. Some of you are whispering to those around you. Some of you look like you're whispering to yourself and you're saying, what about Acts? Right? I see it. It's happening. So I, somebody promised last week at Omaha Bible Church that we would start the book of Acts today. And it might have been me. So... um Sorry to let you down. It won't be the last time. Um, uh, Pat Abendroth makes a really bad savior. I don't always keep my word. Uh, we're, I'm really close to being ready, but I'm not quite ready. And so rather than faking it till you make it, I thought we would give it another week. So Lord willing, next week we'll start the book of Acts. Uh, today it's going to be Jet Tour of Romans. Let me give you the preview ahead of time. Let me give you the outline ahead of time. I don't know where this came from. I'd like to give credit where credit is due. I didn't come up with it. I've tweaked it to make it my own. But there are seven titles, seven words, one word titles that really help us understand the whole book. And so each one of them begins with S. I'll preview them for you now. If you're a note taker, it would be helpful. Even if you're not a note taker, it might be helpful because you could preach this. You could teach this. You could lead this conversation. So the first one would be chapter one, two, and three would be sin. Sin is the first label, the first title that starts with S. Chapter one, two, and three, let's call it one, two, and three A. So partway through chapter three, sin. We're going to start in the darkness. And then I will repeat this in case you're just frantically going. The second section is 3B, chapter 3B, 4 and 5. So that would be the next one. That would be salvation. So we've got sin, we've got salvation. The third one would be from chapter 6 and 7. And let's call that, any guesses? Sanctification. So we have sin, salvation, sanctification. And if you don't know what some of these Asians mean, uh, I will explain in a little while, but sanctification is an important biblical word. Then if we keep moving on to the fourth S, we move on and we move on to chapter, are we on chapter eight now? Okay. Chapter eight would be, any guesses? Security. Security. We are spiritually secure in Christ. That's chapter eight. And then nine, 10, and 11 would be the fifth S. Nine, 10, and 11, let's call it sovereignty. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. We'll define that as well. That's chapters 9, 10, and 11. Then chapters 12 to 15 covers a big section. 12 to 15 would be the sixth S, and let's call that service, service. And then we get to the final S, the final of the seven to understand the whole book of Romans so we can do our jet tour of Romans. Uh, I used to say in chapter 16, you have stuff. But that's not very, that's kind of lazy. That's kind of not sanctified. So let's call it salutations. Okay? Salutations is at the end. So just ever so quickly. So one, two, and three, A, sin. Three, B, four, and five, salvation. Six and seven, sanctification. Eight, security. Nine, ten, and eleven, sovereignty. Twelve to fifteen, service. And sixteen, salutations. So pretty good for a guy with a bad memory.
congratulations. Oh, wait a second. I'm not supposed to congratulate myself. Okay. I've done this so many times. It's really helpful to understand this awesome and amazing book. We're going to start with sin and it's dark. Sin is dark. Sin is, the Bible defines elsewhere as lawlessness. Uh, it can be defined as missing the mark. So if you shoot a bow and arrow and you're aiming at the bullseye and you miss, that would be sin when we're talking about spiritual things. God says do this. We don't do it. We would call that lawlessness or sin. My mother uh, later in life worked in the jewelry business. And what she would do when she would show someone a diamond, I saw her do it numerous times, she wouldn't take the diamond out and put it on the glass counter. She would first take out a very dark colored soft cloth, dark gray or black, and then she would put the diamond down and it looked magnificent, a million times more magnificent. And that's a good way to think about why sin is so important. Sin is that dark gray backdrop of darkness, but if we have that and we see it that, if we see salvation, the diamond that way, we say extraordinary. So Christians don't mind talking about the sinfulness of sin or the darkness of sin because it helps us to to see the grandeur of the diamond of salvation in Christ. So let's do a deep dive into sin. Opening 17 verses are intro. They're wonderful and important, but we have to skip some things. So verses 18 and following of chapter 1, we have sin. Look there with me if you would. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness means law-breaking. We're breaking God's commandments. Unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment before verse 24. Notice God has made himself known to such a clear degree that we should worship him. And we should look at the creation around us, including ourselves, and not worship the creation. We should worship the creator. But we, because of sin, we end up worshiping the things, including ourselves, including other created things, instead of the Creator, and so it becomes perverse. It becomes backward. It becomes wrong. And then he says in verse 24, therefore, because of this, therefore God gave them up. That's a form of judgment. He's going to leave them alone because of this sin. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. Notice he's, he's going to keep repeating that refrain. It's a form of judgment. If you really want to live that way, Okay, I'm going to let you. It's, it's a form of judgment. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts and men uh, with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, there it is again, to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They will be filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree or His legal requirements decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. (sighs) Got to take a breath. That's That's a whole lot of sinning and a whole lot of let them alone kind of judgment. It is dark. Now the Apostle Paul expects, since he's addressing, lots of the people he's addressing are people who have Bibles, 
They're Bible carriers. A lot of them are Jewish. So in, in a certain sense, they're like us. We could say, you know what? We know enough about God. We know enough about the Bible to say, yeah, those people in chapter one, they're definitely sinning. That's definitely sin. And that would be right. That's definitely sin. And they're definitely sinning. We should be able to figure that out. But there's a tendency then for us to think, so at least I'm a good person. At least I know the difference between right and wrong. And then maybe to think you don't need a perfect Savior. But you actually do, because let's keep reading. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's not saying you shouldn't be able to look at that and see it as sin, but you sit in judgment, and then let's keep reading in verse 1, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge... How about that? Practice the very same things. You do the same kind of stuff. Maybe not exactly the same way, but you're you're a pot calling the kettle black, as the saying goes. He's giving them a mirror to look into. Verse 2 says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he's in verse 2, he's saying, you know what? If you think the stuff happening in chapter 1 is bad, you're correct. Those people deserve condemnation. But then keep reading in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Implied answer is no, of course not. Judgment's coming for you too. And I want you to know now where all of this is headed. Halfway through chapter 3 where he's going to transition. It's about 320-ish off the top of my head. I haven't looked ahead for a moment. What he's going to do is he's taking people who don't have Bibles, let's say special revelation from God, and saying, you're sinful. Look at your actions. But then he's also taking people who have Bibles, who are, let's say, religious people, people more like us, and he's saying, you're sinful too. You're not okay either. And so what he's going to do is he's going to paint all of the human race into a corner. So if you paint yourself into a corner, then you can't get out. So you eventually say, I need help from outside. I need somebody to, to deliver me because I can't do it on my own. That's where he's headed. You, you, lots of you know, not all of you do, but he will eventually say, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's, there's not a single actual perfect human being apart from the Savior. That's where he's going. Okay, And sometimes people forget that when we read chapter 2 and they get real confused by things. Let's not get confused. He's headed toward everybody as under condemnation from a fair God. That's where he's headed. How about verse 6 of chapter 2? He, God, will render to each one according to his works. God is going to be fair. All good people are going to go to heaven and all sinful people are going to go to hell. That's that's true. Anyone and everyone who's been perfectly obedient to God will get to go to heaven. God's fair. That's the argument. We know there isn't such a person, uh, except for the Savior, but that's, that's how the argument's going. Chapter 2, verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Absolutely He will. Too bad there won't be any. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's his way of saying he's going to be fair. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So all good people go to heaven, all sinners go to hell, and God will be fair in doing so. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, same kind of principle. How about verse 13? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I'm going to put my finger there for just a second as well and say he's addressing Jewish people who think because they have God's special revelation, I'm doing this, they, 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 they carry big Bibles, if you will, maybe scrolls then, that they're okay. But he's making the point, it's not just the hearers who've heard from God, it's the doers. Houston, we have a problem. Because it's one thing to possess it and hear it 
and know what it says. It's another thing altogether to perfectly do what it says. He's painting us all into this corner. I want to keep reading, but I already know we have lots of ground to cover. At this point in time, all are headed toward the corner to be painted into. He talks about uh, criticizing people who steal in verse 21, but he says, you know what? You steal too. You criticize people who commit adultery, but you commit adultery too. You you criticize idol worshipers, but you're idol worshipers too. So much so that, how about looking at verse 24? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed, spoken ill of among the Gentiles because of you. You, you Bible owners, you are such bad actors that even the godless say, you know what, or they're worse than we are sometimes. We have this kind of talk even in our day. Sometimes atheists say, you know what? Stupid Christians. Did you see them on the news? Did you see what they're up to? It's kind of the same. It's kind of the same. Then it says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. I mean, they they do have something special in having special revelation. They do have something special in having the law of God and having the scriptures of God, the oracles of God, the, the speech of God. So they have something special. The problem is they don't do it. So then if we drop down to verse 9, here here's the gauntlet. Here's the final nail in the coffin, if you will. What then? Look there in verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, and he means in a saving kind of way, and he really goes after them there, but for the sake of time, how about then where it says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Nobody can actually claim they're good enough for heaven. And the whole world, that's where he's been going, the whole world in a corner may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, I have to do a big sigh, like I did earlier in chapter 1. It is dark. He's arguing for universal condemnation. Nobody can say, I'm good enough for heaven. Because nobody has perfectly, to borrow from Jesus, nobody's perfectly loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved their neighbor as themselves. As a Christian, I don't like this. Oh, let me, to be honest, I, I, I kind of do. Because I like things that are logical. I like things that make sense. And you know what makes sense? If this is true, then we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Mother Teresa needs a Savior. Princess Diana needs a Savior. Or whoever other kind of people you can think of who you think were good philanthropic kinds of people. You need a Savior, regardless of how many Bibles you're carrying. Everybody does, because there's none righteous, no, not one. I know that's a kind of a a big word. It's a churchy kind of word. Righteous means adherence to law. Obedience to God's requirements. And he says there's none righteous. No, not even one. And you say, that's bad news. Yep, that's really bad news. But you'll never understand the good news and its grandeur and glory unless you understand the bad news. That's why I kind of like studying sin. Because it helps me to understand the salvation better. Ready to go? Keep going? Sometimes I wish I pastored a charismatic church because you would you would make me feel like you're ready even if you were faking it. <laughs> Here we are, the frozen chosen at OBC. <laughs> oh, it's, it's all good. Got you to laugh at least. The sinfulness of sin. I'm just going to step into it, embrace it, and not deny it. Hello, my name is Pat, and I have a problem. And you say, hello, Pat, right? I need a Savior. 
None righteous, no, not one. We are smoked. We are undone. We are so busted. It's not even funny. Then we're ready for salvation. Our second S title. Let's go chapter 3b through chapter 5. It says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made clear or revealed apart from the law. That's, that's a great statement, but I think it's potentially confusing. How, how in the world can we have righteousness made clear apart from the law when righteous means adherence to law? On the face of it, it kind of doesn't make sense. But let me help you make sense of it. The righteousness of God, the, the law of God, the law requirement of God, the God who requires adherence to His law, has been made clear, has been made known, but in a different way. In a different way other than the gauntlet way that says you're all in so much trouble, it's not even funny. It's made known in a different sort of way, manifested apart from the law. And here's what he's saying. I promise you, don't take my word for it, you're going to see it unfold. But what he's saying is now there is a way to have righteousness. Now because of Christ, there is a way to have righteousness from God apart from you being on the hook to perfectly, personally, and perpetually obey God's law. Because you don't and you won't. Now, through the gospel, through the work of Christ, there's righteousness, which is what you need, from God, but it's not through your adherence to that law because you never would meet the, the obligation. It's extraordinary what's happening. It's not hard to understand if you just think about it. 22, the righteousness of God, think He's providing it, He's the source. How? Through faith, through trusting, through resting, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all who rest, for all who have faith, for all who trust. What he does is so easy and so simple and yet so profound and so logical. Through a gracious provision, the obligation is met. Our only hope, our great hope. He goes on to say, there is no distinction, see, between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means declared righteous. That's legal courtroom judge kind of talk you're declared a law keeper even if you're not one because none of us are you are justified you are declared righteous in god's court of law how by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus whom god put forward see god is doing god's the actor he's doing all of this as a propitiation a propitiation or atonement or satisfaction by his blood to be, to, re- to be received how? By faith. That would be faith in Christ. This was to show God's righteousness. This is fascinating. God is going to demonstrate His legal requirement, His righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show, to demonstrate His legal requirement, righteousness, at the present time, keep thinking with me, so that He might, so that God might be the just, the righteous in other words, and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm just shaking my head because there's so much goodness in there. There's so much goodness, good news, gospel news in there. Christianity, you can fault Christianity for different things, in particular Christians. But you can't fault it Actually, for being illogical. God, the righteous judge, is going to demonstrate and uphold his righteous requirement. He's not going to say, ah, I'll just lower the standard. Hopefully your good outweighs your bad. I used to have that kind of standard, but you know, I took a bribe. He's not an unjust judge. He's not a corrupt judge. He is the righteous judge. He's going to maintain it. It's inflexible. It's never going to change because it's right. And what is he going to do? He's going to meet the obligation himself by providing righteousness, adherence to law through his son. It's amazing. It is amazing. 
to be the just, the righteous judge, and the one who declares righteous, how can that be when we're not righteous? Because of the provision of His Son who stands in as a substitute. It is magnificent what happens. Extraordinary what happens. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? That's a great way to evaluate anyone's supposed version of Christianity. Well, well then, then how, how can I brag? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith. That would be faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. Or, or, or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not the God of Gentiles also. He's not the God of Gentiles also. Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify, declare righteous, declare perfectly obedient to his law, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Same way. Same Savior. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Christians aren't saying God keeps changing the standard. We're saying the standard is always there. And it's been met through a substitute who we trust in. It's, it's so good. I never want to leave this. I just, want to, I just want to be here. And maybe one reason I want to be here is because maybe for a long time I didn't understand it. How good the good news is. And I know lots of Christians don't understand it. And then lots of Christians do understand it, but they don't understand it in Romans. And I don't think it's a riddle book. We just need to understand some basic words like, Righteous, righteousness, justice, justified, faith. And we're, we're understanding them. It's so exciting. Now, the Apostle Paul knows, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that somebody's going to clear their throat and say, <clears throat> I have an objection. Okay? And that's what happens. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. I'm going to stop there just for a second. See, clear your throat. Um, what about Father Abraham? Maybe they didn't do that then, but... <laughs> because we know, we know that he was such an obedient man. We know that he was so obedient that God... Declared him righteous. He justified him. Well, you might want to blow the dust off of Genesis and reread that. He'll quote it for us. But notice he says he has something to boast about in verse 2, but not before God. Because here's how it works. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He trusted in God and it was credited. It was counted to him as Perfect law obedience. It wasn't his. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. It's not the case with Abraham is his point. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. The apostle Paul's willing to say that about Abraham. And if he's willing to say, about, say it about Abraham, I'm sure he'd be willing to say it about you. His faith is counted as righteousness. So then someone else in Sunday school listening to Romans, but it would have been Shabbat school, right? Sabbath school clears their throat and says, what about David? David was such a godly man. David did all the right things. And so God declared him righteous. You might want to blow the dust off some other books in the Bible if that's what you think. I plead with Sunday school teachers, don't tell my kids to be like David. Of all people, please. But he was important because of the role that he played. So don't get me wrong as a king. And Oh, but notice verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts, credits, imputes as the idea, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That would include David talking about him and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So it's as if to say, I'm so glad you brought up those two people. Salvation comes freely by grace alone through faith 
in the finished work of the perfect Christ alone. It's what he's doing. To the point where you can never say, I'm good. I did it. Met God halfway. Or anything like that. No boasting. We get to heaven as Revelation says and we say worthy is the Lamb. Boasting is in Him. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared perfectly obedient to God's law, therefore having been justified by faith, faith in Christ, not faith in faith, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to make decisions. Hopefully they're sanctified decisions. What do we talk about? What do we not talk about? We're going to have to skip a lot of chapter 5, which I don't want to do, but we probably need to. But let's at least dwell on chapter 5, verse 1 for a moment. Some of you know this, not all of you do. For those of you who don't, and as a reminder, what the Apostle Paul's doing in talking about justified by faith He's looking ahead, and he does this in chapter 8, verse 1 in particular, but we'll do it here. He's looking ahead to judgment day. Which on your own, in light of 1, 2, and 3 chapters, you should be afraid of. Huh. You better be perfect. Because God has an inflexible standard. Read chapter 10. He's the just. The Apostle Paul gives us an inspired preview of what's going to happen on Judgment Day. Justification is judgment talk. It's courtroom talk. He says, therefore, having been justified, declared perfectly obedient in God's court of law by the God who knows all things, by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. He's taking the future, bringing it into the here and now and telling you what's true now and what will be true then because of the finished work of Christ. Believer, you should have zero fear of meeting God one day. I know some people don't want to tell you that. Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, I can already tell you what's going to happen on that day. It's right there. Justification. But it's a current reality. Peace with God now. It's amazing. Oh, I want to do 512 and following. How about just verse 19? For as by one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, according to 5.12, the many were made sinners, violators of God's law. So by the one man's obedience, that would be Jesus, the many will be made righteous, made righteous in the eyes of God, before the court of God. And that's why I'm, I'm translating it that way because of what he says elsewhere. It's the ungodly who are justified, declared righteous. And we probably have to stop there. It's so good. The salvation is of the Lord. It's so good, again, some people don't want you to know. It's so grand and so extraordinary and so amazing. Salvation through not your works of obedience to God's perfect standards, but salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and His works and adherence to God's perfect standards. And then we read about atonement where He satisfies the justice of God for our wrongdoing. doesn't get any better. doesn't get any better. If you want your money back because we're not doing acts today, talk to security. <laughs> Let's go to the third, lest we be here and security have to escort us out. Okay, so sin is the first one. Salvation is the next one. Sanctification is the next one. That's in chapters 6 and 7. Uh, sanctify means to be holy, distinct, separate, set apart. Sometimes we use it for our Christian conduct, the way we're to live our lives. For the, uh, we want to be holy because God is holy and live differently. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? 
There's another person in that Sabbath school who's going to make an objection and he anticipates it. Are we to continue in sin or lawlessness that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. But I want to stop just for a moment and remind you of something because not all of you have heard me remind uh, say this. Lots of you have. This is the question that needs to be asked. Right? The Apostle Paul has been so clear that salvation is by grace only, faith in Christ only because of his perfect provision that he anticipates somebody's going to say, does that mean we can live like the devil? And I'm sure Martin Luther said this. I'm sure people after him have. I have. People before him probably did. And that's this. If people don't ask you this question when you tell them the gospel, you've not done a good job. If people hear you say something and you label it gospel and it has something to do with your obedience or their obedience, you've not done a good job. It begs the question, does this mean we can live like hell or children of hell? Oh, no. Absolutely not, but I'm so glad you asked. You must understand that God justifies the ungodly. Chapter 4, verse 5. But do notice, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's, that's impossible. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ... Jesus, were baptized into His death. We we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ, how about that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, all Christians believe that, by the glory of the Father, we too, notice, might walk, conduct, action, the way we carry ourselves now in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, and we have, if we're Christians, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Do you see? You died with Christ. And, and not only that, you've been raised with Christ. And so you're going to live a new kind of life. He says, unto newness of life. You, you could say, based upon what he's going to go on to argue, it would be impossible not to. If you're truly a Christian, you died to sin and now you live unto righteousness. You used to be enslaved to sin. I'm not going to read all of the verses, but he talks about that. You used to be enslaved to sin, so it made sense that you sin. But you know what? Now you have a new master, a new kind, generous master, and you're no longer enslaved. You died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. So in other words, therefore, once you trust in Christ, live differently. You need to live differently. You can live differently. Life changes. Don't put chapter 6, please, I beg of you, don't put what he's teaching in chapter 6 in chapters 1 to 5. Or you need to go to somewhere else. You're joining a different religion. But in the Christian religion, according to the way he's unpacking things, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and you know what happens? When you trust in Christ, you're united to Him. Even in resurrection. That's what he's saying. Sanctification. He even says things like in verse 7, set free from sin. You'll live with Him. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Then he says at the end of verse 13, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness as instruments for adherence to God's law. You say, wait a second. I thought justification wasn't by adherence to God's law, and you would be right. But now that you're united to Christ by faith, you don't do nothing to do double negative. Now you're supposed to do righteousness. You're supposed to do what God says. Love God, love neighbor would be how Jesus would paraphrase it. Okay. How about verse 14? For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And I probably should stop there. I almost don't want to because I am really feeling the flow. But I'm going to stop because sometimes Christians get hung up on this. In fact, whole books are written with this kind of title and they're super duper uber extraordinary confusing lots of Christians take that statement out of context 
oh, we're not under law, we're under grace. And they do crazy things with it. Like, just live however you want to live. Licentiousness, license. Antinomianism, no laws whatsoever because we're not under law, we're under grace. And they get super confused. In the flow, in the context of things, we're not under law, we're under grace for justification, for gaining a right standing before God. But he's not saying Christians have nothing to do with God's law or he wouldn't use words after this like righteous, like righteousness, like obey. Those are all law words. But see, we have a new relationship to God's law. We have a new relationship to God's requirements. I don't have to perfectly, personally, perpetually keep them in order to gain salvation on Judgment Day. Christ has given me these things. And now that I'm united to Christ by faith, what am I supposed to do? Lawlessness? Unrighteousness? No, righteousness, which is obedience to God's requirements. Okay, that's why he says... We're not to do instruments for unrighteousness, or excuse me, we are now instruments for righteousness. Verse 13. Well, I won't take the time to unpack it all, but he says, now, verse 18, toward the end of verse 18, we become slaves, servants of righteousness. So we're not under law, we're under grace for justification, but did you see there? Now we are servants of Law, servants of righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Implied thing is there, we're not free from righteousness anymore. Now we actually are wanting to do the right thing because of who we are in Christ. Chapter 7, I think, is similar. I don't want to split the church over different views of Romans chapter 7. Um, but when you look at chapter 7, verse 10, I think it's still in the flow of talking about these same matters. How about 7.10? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What is he getting at? There is a commandment that promises life. It's in Leviticus. It's in Romans chapter 2. It's in Romans chapter 10. It's in other places. If you do this perfectly obey God's law, you will have eternal life. Jesus talks about this very commandment. What should we do to gain eternal life? Love, uh, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. That's true in principle, right? Or Jesus wouldn't have said it. The Apostle Paul knows what God's law requires. The very commandment that promised life all you need to do is be perfect and you'll have eternal life. True? That would be true. You can't do it because you're united to Adam. But in principle, it would be true. Prove to be death to me, Paul says. Because he's in Adam. So the Apostle Paul trying to gain eternal life by obeying the law, obeying the law, obeying the law, obeying the law, you know what? Slayed him. Can't do it. I've got to look outside of myself to be saved. In a certain sense, the Apostle Paul trying to do the right thing as an unbeliever to gain eternal life just leads to total despair and desperation. But I'm glad he had good enough theology to know that the law does promise eternal life in principle. But it's an impossibility, chapter 5, for all who were in Adam. I, I can't be sanctified if I'm not justified. <laughs> That's why I would still put it in the sanctification section. Okay, enough for now. We're going to move on to number four. So we've got sin, salvation, sanctification. Number four, chapter eight, is security. It is security. It says in chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's the opposite of justification on judgment day. There's no condemnation, but notice it's now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's security. The work of Christ, complete. So when we think about judgment to come, we can say, you know what? Because of what Christ has done, now there's no condemnation. We've already talked about this. 
This is why 828 can say what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then 29 and 30 are so magnificent. Then how about chapter 8 verse 31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Implied answer is, he, he will give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I mean, it, it's assurance, security that is so sure and so secure, it's not even funny. It's unassailable. To the point where death, life, satanic things. I mean, you can, you can read it when you, we won't do it right now, but regardless, all these bad things that happen, famine, nakedness, danger, sword in verse 35, none of these things can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's absolutely possible, impossible for that to happen. This is why sometimes I, 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 I sort of freak out, at least inside, when people suggest that theology isn't practical. In so many ways, the most practical thing I could possibly do talking to you today, knowing that death is real, suffering is real, injustice is real, all of these bad things, Satan is real, your life is going to be filled with all kinds of bad things, how can I best help you? I'm not saying you should ignore other helps, but the greatest help is to know, you know what, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the best I got. <laughs> At the, end, at the end of the day, all of the other helps are going to stop helping. I'm not saying you shouldn't seek other temporary helps from other places. But I'm here to tell you that your greatest problem has been taken care of so you can face tomorrow. Nothing is more practical than that. Nothing is more practical than that. Nothing can separate you. We are, as it says in verse 37, more than conquerors. As a brand new, oh, I don't know, theologue, um, wanting to learn things and study Greek. And you know what happens? People study Greek and they think they know everything. Uh, and they probably are just smart enough to start a cult. Um, and then you pay thousands and thousands of dollars. And then you know for sure when you just learn you're smart enough to start a cult. You think you're going to find all the answers. And then you realize that the English translations are really good. Um, and so... You calm down, but I, I will never forget, even with a bad memory, the more than conquerors one. Hooper Nike. Super Nike. I thought, oh, I like Greek. Greek is cool. But see, now you'll remember in verse 37. Borrowing from the games, no matter what we win, no matter what victorious, no matter what crown of life, if you're in Christ Jesus, super conquerors, unstoppable victors. Not so we can say, aren't we awesome? No boasting, at least not in ourselves. You've got to remember that. Let's move on to the next one. We're going to do number five, sovereignty. Sovereignty. Boys and girls, S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. Don't worry, I have a hard time spelling it too, but I have spell check. Sovereignty. It's a word that's not used that many times in the Bible, but the idea is everywhere. It's all over the place. It is used in the Bible. It's used for royalty. It's used for those who would be a king or a queen. And if you have a an ultimate sovereign, they're the ultimate king. Okay, Here in America, we don't like kings very much, our history tells us, um, and maybe for good reason. 
But we have a king that doesn't have ill motives, who is good by definition, who is for his people but never selfish. He has all wisdom, all power. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So we're talking about the king of kings, the sovereign of sovereigns. God who has a decree and his decree is certain. It is unstoppable because he has all power and all wisdom. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. He's in charge. You can count on him. His purposes never fail. Romans 9 to 11 deals with the sovereignty of God on different kinds of levels. But if we step back, the big level is this. If salvation is so great... A common Jewish objection or Bible reader objection would be, then why aren't all the Jews saved? It's a fair question. Because it sure looks to me when I read the Old Testament like God made a lot of really big promises to people. He made a lot of really big promises to Jewish people. So it's a, it's a good objection in a certain sense. And maybe we'd say, so maybe God's not sovereign. Maybe God made the promises, but it didn't work out, so he switched to plan B. Well, then he wouldn't be sovereign. So the Apostle Paul engages that kind of objection to talk about the sovereignty of God. That maybe when you read those promises, you haven't read them carefully enough. Oh, indeed, God saves Jewish people, but he also has a plan and purpose even built into the Old Testament to save not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Part of the plan. Well, let's let's take a shot at it ever so quickly. Uh, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, verse 1. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. Uh, it has to do with his Jewish brethren, if you will. He talks about the Israelites in verse 4. Adoption, glory, covenants, giving up the law, patriarchs. Then verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So you may not have read it carefully enough if you concluded that everyone who had the last name Davidson, to make it up, but who's Jewish, is elect unto salvation. Might be a little different than you thought. The plan might have included Gentiles as well if we keep reading. Then he says, and again, I I apologize for needing to skip, but we do need to. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election, because he's talking about that was with Jews and Gentiles, might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. See, God is free to do what he wants to do, but that might make us uncomfortable. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse verse 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, God is free to do what he wants to do. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God can save Jews. He doesn't have to save all of them. He can save Gentiles as well. It's part of his decree and purpose. Verse 17 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, What? Help me out. Was Pharaoh a good guy or a bad guy? So we, we have Moses, but then Pharaoh? For this very purpose, I have raised you up. God is sovereign over Moses and Pharaoh and everything. That I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me uncomfortable. How in the world are we going to manage such a God? Right? It kind of makes us uncomfortable. Now, I like where he goes. He's going, to, he's going to praise God for this. I hope you go from uncomfortable to praising God, even if it's uncomfortable. Then he does say in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Then it says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And as one of my former pastors once said, in other words, shut up. God is sovereign. Kind of makes us uncomfortable. But he can save how he wants to save, whenever he wants to save. 
He can do whatever he wants to do. I want to talk more about some of these things and uh, honorable use, dishonorable use, vessels for mercy, wrath. I'll save that for another time. But I do want you to notice a verse we forget about sometimes in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, in the Old Testament, those who are not my people, those who are not Jews, Israelites, I will call my people. Jews, Israelites. But they're not. But he's going to call them that. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. That is really, really, really interesting. He's going to save, but he's not maybe going to save the way you thought, but this isn't coming out of nowhere. This isn't plan B changing his mind. He's the savior of Jews. He's the savior of Gentiles. He's the savior of the world, but it might not be just how we thought it was going to be. But make no mistake about it. It's not because his plan A failed. Oh, chapter 10, I'd love to talk about in detail. It actually literally is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible regarding God's requirements. I do like sovereignty as well, that in God's sovereign plan, you do have to believe the gospel. You do. He uses preachers so that people can hear the gospel. That's in chapter 10, but we won't take the time to go there. So we don't have sovereignty, but he doesn't use human means. He does. Then chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And he goes on to talk about how he's an Israelite, member of the tribe of Benjamin. So we have the partial hardening. We have the making jealous. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous that, and thus save some of them. So there's a lot going on there. The mystery to be wise regarding, but not in your own sight. In verse 25, partial hardening upon Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But for the sake of time, let's go from maybe being troubled by God, questioning God because He's sovereign, to how about verse 33? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! Oh, the sovereignty of God, in other words. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Answer is in the negative. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? No one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Oh, so the sovereignty of God. Okay, let's do number six, and then let's do number seven. Hope you're hanging in there. Number six, service. Number six, service. And this would be chapters 12 to 15. A big, huge section. I can at least cover it in general in one verse. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look there with me if you would. I appeal to you, therefore, and I think he, that therefore is, is, is looking back to all that's gone before. God's saving purposes, God's sanctifying purposes, how God works, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be sure and secure, all of that, trusting in God's sovereignty. I appeal to you, therefore, now that you know what you know, brothers, by the mercies of God, that would be another good one that lots of commentators would say, that that's filled with weighty meaning, the mercies of God. He's talking about everything he's talked about before. It's just loaded. So in light of everything we've been learning that's so great, here's the challenge to you. Present your bodies, you and all of your faculties, your entire being, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy. So you're going to be different, distinct, not just like everybody else, Mr. and Mrs. Christian. Holy and acceptable to God. Notice which is your spiritual worship. So this is living worship, life worship. And the reason I call it service is because in the New American Standard translation, which I originally memorized, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he just goes on to talk about your life. Your life in the church, your life outside of the church, your life with mature Christians, your life with immature Christians, your life as you will live your life. And it's, you know what, you can deal with anybody. You can be patient because Christ was patient. 
You can be forgiving because Christ was forgiving. You can live your life different from unbelievers and your old unbelieving life because you, you, you have all of this from God. Is a good paraphrase, at least from where I am, from chapters 12 all the way through chapter 15. So you have the weaker brother in chapter 14 who brings baggage from former religious life about what is good and not good, certain days, certain foods. He's like, you know what? You can deal with them. And you can deal with one another. You can face anything and live like a Christian. Something interesting happens in that that section, and that is now we want to imitate Christ. He uses that kind of argumentation. But please notice he doesn't use that kind of argumentation in, let's say, chapters 1 to 5. Oh, the way to be right with God is imitate Jesus. In a certain sense, have fun with that. He did everything right all the time. But see, now that you're in Christ, united to Him by faith, and there's no condemnation for you, He uses that kind of rationale in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. We belong. We're in the family. We're safe. Let's follow our spiritual elder brother who did everything right for us. Oh, how about, if you would, because I don't want you to take my word for it. um, Oh, just thinking lowly of ourselves and not too mighty of ourselves because Christ humbled himself. That's chapter 12, verses 3 and following. How about chapter 3, verse, or excuse me, not chapter 3, chapter 12, verse 3. Chapter 12, how about verse 9? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. He talks about rejoicing and being patient. All of these kinds of fruits of the Spirit kinds of things, all of these one another kinds of things, and there will be no, well, we can't do that. You're in Christ. Yeah, but you have to understand how bad this other person is and how immature they are. Do you remember how gracious and kind the Lord was in saving you? This is why in so many ways we want to preach the gospel to Christians when they're having all kinds of other issues. He's been preaching the gospel and all of its goodness and greatness 11 chapters. And now it's, here's how you should live. And don't tell me for a second that you can't. So all of these imperatives are coming because of what's true for us in Christ. It's grand. It's great. Our whole lives now can be lives of worship. Regardless of what we're facing, regardless of who we're dealing with, it can be true. Chapter 15, verse 3. Christ did not please himself. It's that kind of stuff. I want to live for me, but I'm a Christian now, so I need to follow Christ. And what's that look like in the life of the church? Well, I want my way. All of these things are so practical then. You know, while you're a Christian, Pat, Christ didn't please himself. So maybe you could defer to others. Maybe you could flex because you're Christ-like now or need to be. Lots of great stuff. For the sake of time, we're going to do our final one, and that would be salutations number seven. That would be chapter 16. He names all these people, and that's mainly what I want you to see, and then we'll do the benediction as our benediction at the end. But I do want you to see this. This isn't the Apostle Paul um, in his ivory tower, separated from people, uh, just theologizing. We start with Phoebe. Our sister, we have Priscilla, we have Aquila, we have Mary, we have Urbanus, we have other people whose names are really hard to say. At one point in time, I counted all of them. I don't remember how many of them there are. But the point is for us, at least right now, that I want to stress with you, gospel and all that it entails and its implications for real people Like us, what did they need? They needed to understand the work of Christ on their behalf. Changes everything. 
but it's not separate from real life. He's engaged with real life to the point where he knows these people. Let's do the benediction to close and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. How about in verse 25? I hope you're impressed by this in light of all of what we've heard. Now to him who is able. I love it that even the Apostle Paul doesn't think it's him. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you so much for a refreshing time of thinking about things that will matter forever. And thank you for making yourself known to us through letters that we have like the book of Romans. Thank you for your loving kindness and your patience. Thank you for not holding our sins against us. Thank you for the fact that you are the just God, but you are also the God who justifies those who trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus. May this place be filled with people who do, in fact, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and find motivation for godly living because of what it means to be in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.